The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition, the Spectator's look at some of the most intriguing and important issues within the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. This week, Joe Biden wants his administration to be a clear departure from the days of Donald Trump, but will a change in foreign policy harm American interests? Plus, Brexit deadlines seem to come and go, but is this finally the week where a deal might be done? And finally, Should cyclists be given priority on London's roads? First up, Dominic Green writes about Biden's burden in this week's cover piece. He argues that while the president-elect has promised to be the antithesis of Trump in almost every sense, an interventionist foreign policy married to domestic wokery could spell trouble. To explain what he means by this, Dominic, the Spectator's deputy US editor, joins me alongside Leslie Vinjamuri, director of the US and America's programme at Chatham House. Dominic, in this week's issue, you say that Biden has a chance to reshape America's foreign policy for a new era, but that's because Trump has already done a lot of the legwork. What legacy has Trump left Biden? Well, Laura, I would compare it to a partially constructed building in that he uh, cleared the ground of the the leftovers of uh, Cold War and 20th century American policy, which were no longer working for the US or its allies, and laid some foundations and in some areas started to actually build upon them. You have to assume that the Trump administration was counting on getting a second term in which to develop these ideas. Nevertheless, In pretty much every region, you can see that the US has has changed its relations with its clients and with its rivals as well, not always to the pleasure of either party, but nevertheless, in a way that attempts to grapple with the 21st century world as it is, not the 20th century world that the US would have preferred to deal with, the world in which it won the Second World War and the Cold War, but the reality of a rising multipolar system, with China in particular, heading on a kind of collision course, really, if the US wishes to maintain primacy. Leslie, in Dominic's piece, he says that Trump has forced difficult questions onto the national agenda. Do you agree with that? Well, I think it is true that Donald Trump has ensured that China remains in the eye of the American public and in the minds of American decision makers and politicians, the number one challenge and threat. But I'm not so sure that that wouldn't have happened in any case, largely because, as we know, China has changed considerably during the time that Donald Trump has has been in office, and that was already happening. So I think sometimes we overcredit President Trump, even on that, that one issue in which he's really overseen the forging of a bipartisan consensus that, that America needs to take a much tougher line on China. But that has happened. Uh, the second issue, of course, where he has overseen a bipartisan consensus is on trade, that America needs to take a tougher line on trade. But here again, this was already in, in play. The Democrats had already walked back their interest in free trade. The Republicans hadn't. And so Donald Trump has clearly changed for now the the Republican Party's stance on free trade. The problem, of course, in the credit is that he hasn't really left much by way of strategy for next steps. He sort of highlighted some big challenges, 
but he hasn't really left us very much to work with. So I think we're really at a, at a pretty grave point in America's engagement with the rest of the world. And the next administration is, is on many dimensions, going to be starting you know, from the ground up. Tom, another point that you make in your piece is that whereas Trump objected to China as an economic and military threat, Biden's objections are more moral. So what do you think his policy towards China will be? Well, so far he's said two things, one of which I believe he says with some conviction but not much sense of the reality, which is to criticise China as a human rights abuser. During the debates, he, he described Xi Jinping as a thug, which is far more extreme than anything Donald Trump has ever said. The other thing is to declare that now he is in favour of reconstructing America's industrial base. The idea that Biden or indeed any mainstream democratic politician would suddenly be converted to this because of processes happening within the Democratic Party. As Leslie is saying, I find that completely incomprehensible. Donald Trump has completely altered the entire conversation and the Democrats have been forced to play catch-up, which is why Biden emitted these implausible statements about building back better. This was someone who in his entire career in Washington was an enthusiast for whatever the wisdom of the day was, and that included, of course, outsourcing, free trade, and all the other things which have badly misfired for the American workforce. So now if he's changed 180 degrees around, that is a, a reflection of how drastically things have changed inside the U.S. And of course, things are also changing externally. The idea that the U.S. can dictate terms, even to close rivals, uh, sorry, close allies in Europe, is, is no longer applies. The, the idea that, as the administration, incoming administration has said, that it uh, wants to reconstruct its relations with the European Union, the idea that this reconstruction would resemble what they were before is simply untenable. In fact, there are clear lines, and they're not favourable to the US. I would agree with that much with Leslie. It is not looking like an easy job. If, however, rather than respond to the reality as it now is, the new administration decides to build from the ground up as if nothing has changed, then I think it's very quickly going to get into trouble with friends as well as with rivals. Leslie, what do you think Biden means for Europe? Well, you know, there, first of all, in a response, there are a couple of things there. The Democrats very clearly decided uh, under during the time when Hillary Clinton was, was running for election that they didn't like NAFTA. They were very opposed to the TPP. And Hillary Clinton, as a result, had to change um, and walk back her support. Why did they do that? Because they didn't think that the standards attached to that agreement were good for the American worker. They weren't good for the environment. They weren't good for labor. They were leading to a loss of manufacturing jobs. So the Democratic Party had already begun to become more progressive on questions of trade um, I don't and, think Joe you know, Biden had that. Very, I'm sorry very to clearly. I don't recall Joe Biden ever saying anything about that, about scepticism towards NAFTA or TPP. Uh, certainly not when Hillary Clinton was about. So, so I mean, I think if, if the question is, you know, where is Joe Biden now? He, he clearly reflects two things. One is the change that had already happened in the Democratic Party. He reflects the change that happened under Donald Trump, where that consensus really spread through the Republican Party, the electorate, and very much in the Republican Party. And, and you're right to say that now where Americans stand on free trade is they like the idea of it, but it's really got to be more fair trade than free trade. So it, it's, it's a much tougher picture. And, and, and you're also right that America can't dictate the terms. Trump gave voice to this. The problem, of course, is that he didn't give voice to it in a way that, that allowed a very productive solution. So he was very good at blocking things, right? The WTO, you know, sort of crippled in the appellate 
body by the measures that the United States took under his leadership. The tariff wars against Europe at the same time uh, against China kind of blocked a lot of productive measures and, and cost American families a lot, right? We know this. So when I say from the ground up, you know, the, the problem now, the challenge now for the next administration is to come back to Europe and say, how are we going to work with you to actually move forward on some agreements on trade, in part so that we can all collectively focus on the China challenge, because that's really where the name of the game is for the United States. And, you know, to be fair uh, to President Obama, he saw this, right? He had a different understanding and a different vision of how you invest America's power and influence in Asia. And in his view, you did that by investing America in the Trans-Pacific Partnership, shaping the norms and standards that would configure exchange in the region in a block that China would be excluded from. And, you know, what's happened now is the, the relationship has become very much focused on hard security instruments, now on technology, but America's losing out a bit in terms of actually influencing the broader exchange and standards and investments in the region. So I think there, there will be two challenges. One is how do you continue to execute that very tough stance towards China? And I think it, it extends far beyond a focus on democracy and human rights. And, but also, how do, you, how do you measure and extend America's influence to include not only security measures, but a, but a range of economic measures, which will be which will be absolutely critical. But isn't, isn't there a danger of confusing cause and effect here, that taking Donald Trump as the symptom of everything which is now challenging about foreign policy, I, I don't think is entirely what has taken place. It's more that the kind of forces in the world system which produce a Donald Trump have also produced regions which, don't, which the US doesn't have the same kind of influence over. For instance, the trade deal that was just signed between the ASEAN powers and China, Australia, New Zealand, American allies joining a Pacific trade deal with China. You know, that sort of thing places the US on the outside completely. And there's a kind of circular argument which says, well, TPP and so on is good because it binds the US and allies together. On the other hand, TPP won't sell domestically, so it's good we don't have TPP, but we need TPP. This is the kind of doom loop that the conversation seems to be in in Washington. It seems like it's unable to move beyond 2016, as though the system misfired so terribly and produced the Trump that everything must now be reset to it. And I think that that would be a very risky and disastrous thing to do. And if you look at the early statements from Jake Sullivan, Trump's national security advisor, for instance, that's exactly what we're seeing is the attempt to reset to 2016 with a sort of crust on top of politically correct stuff for the domestic audience. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things there. I think you're right that that the United States now recognizes that it's on the outside of the regional comprehensive economic partnership, as is India. It recognizes that it's on the outside of the CPTPP, which it initially, you know, really helped to lead. And so it recognizes that it's on the outside of those global are those regional norm-building processes that are really going to shape trade and exchange in the region. And, and, and certainly for the Biden administration and, and for Jake Sullivan, for the economic team, for Tony Blinken, this is not a good thing because America's losing influence. At the same time, it's very hard to invest, invest in getting America into um, the TPP because there just simply isn't the domestic political support for it. 
But I think, you know, to your to your comment about Jake Sullivan, the, the nominee for, for Joe Biden to be national security advisor, he's clearly spent a considerable amount of his recent time investing in understanding the domestic concerns of voters in Nebraska and voters in the American Midwest. He's done a study, he's done many, many interviews, like this has been his focus. Many people thought he would have a domestic appointment. And the reason I think that we've seen him in this appointment as national security advisor, assuming you know that it, that it all comes together, is uh, because clearly the Biden administration wants to have a foreign policy that makes the world safe for America's democracy and allows it to invest at home. So it's a it's a foreign policy that has individuals who have been looking, you know, at both sides of the of the of the um, ocean, as it were. But that's not just what Sullivan is saying. He's saying he wants to have a foreign policy that corrects four hundred years of racism. He says he, he wants to have a foreign policy which includes you know, economic intervention at home, equity and so on. These are domestic obsessions of the United States that have zero purchase. I, I actually don't think we agree on this. I think you're absolutely right that the, that the foreign policy is seen as being you know, re, rebuilding an architecture and a set of trade agreements and security arrangements is seen by this team to be important so that it allows America to focus on the home front, right? That's exactly, that's exactly what I think we're seeing from the administration. They want to invest in education, in health, in industry, in large part, right, not only to restore the middle class, to speak to those who are in the manufacturing sector, to address issues of, of racial inequality, of course, but, but also to make America competitive with China, Right. And with the movement of, you know, the world's GDP towards Asia. So it is an integrated vision of foreign policy and one that's designed and frankly, very much as it was in the early days of the Cold War, that's designed and conceived as a stra- an international strategy that's aimed to deliver to the American people. I can I can agree. That's how it's being conceived. But I have to say, it seems to me to be back to front. And it's interesting you refer to the early Cold War because the boundary between, say, Russia and the U.S. was clearly understood in those years. Uh, the, 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 the strategic boundary between China and the U.S. is not clearly understood. This administration, like the previous ones and like many others, is, is committed to maintaining a massive U.S. military presence on the wrong side of the Pacific Ocean, which is insupportable. It's simply, if it was tested, it would crumble. That, to me, does not seem to be the kind of premise on which a stable domestic economy can be built, or even American society, which is massively divided against itself. You know, even even that sort of division could be healed. It's back to front. And it also assumes that China, which is, you know, a rising power determined to assert itself globally, it also assumes that China will say, yes, we'll let the US do this. We'll let them prepare themselves domestically for the coming confrontation. And I don't think that they're going to be that foolish either. And meanwhile, if you look at the, the, today, the word is that the U.S. ambassador to China is going to be Pete Buttigieg. And Buttigieg speaks seven languages, Norwegian, French, Spanish, Italian, Maltese, Arabic, and Dari. He doesn't speak Chinese. He hasn't shown any knowledge of anything to do with China. He's being picked, the word is, because he went down well with the donors and well with the base. This is putting domestic priority ahead of, of foreign policy priority, in my understanding. So I think this administration has it back to front. I think it's a, it's a false dichotomy, right? The 
first of all, the world has changed, right? So it, it, was, it was a very different thing to, to talk about how you're investing your military during the Cold War than it is today. A big part of the reason that there is that commitment to remaining invested on the, at a defense and security level in, in the South China Seas and in that broader Asia region is to keep the possibility of trade not only for the United States, but for America's allies very open. Hopefully that's incredibly important to Europe as well. And, and if you don't do that, the cost for Americans at home will become very significant. So, you know, freedom of navigation, deterrence of China is absolutely part of what it takes in a world that's so integrated in which the global economy has to be sustained. Uh, It's vital. There is clearly a big debate about, you know, what do we do as the defense budget is inevitably going to flatten, priorities are going to have to become much more clearly defined. And I think that's where you see a commitment to withdrawing from the Middle East, to really rethinking America's engagement in the Middle East, to being much more strategic and much less tactical, um, and a walking back from any sort of interest in democracy pro- promotion through the mechanism of, of military intervention. Thank you, Dominic, and thank you, Leslie. Next, on Wednesday evening, Boris Johnson met Ursula von der Leyen over dinner to thrash out a path to a Brexit deal. What happened? What's left to negotiate? And why is it taking so long to reach an agreement? To discuss, I'm joined by our political editor, Jane Forsyth, and Mujtaba Rahman, Managing Director of Eurasia Group. James, can you start by bringing listeners up to speed on where we are right now in the latest Brexit talks? So last night, Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen and their chief negotiators had dinner together. The hope was that this might spy the ground for some potential compromise. It didn't really do that. I think both sides are relatively downbeat afterwards. But David Frost and Michel Barnier will have another go round the track. Then Boris Johnson and Ursula von der Leyen will speak again on Sunday to see whether enough progress has been made to kind of justify keeping the talks going. I think in in an odd way, the sides are both very close together and very far apart. They are quite close to agreeing this zero tariff, zero quota FTA, but it is essentially this issue of the ratchet or evolution clause, if you want to put it like that. So what happens if the EU were to change its rules and the UK did not follow suit? And fishing that remain the two big sticking points. Mitch, one of the points that James makes in his piece is that both sides sort of still see the only real deadline as the end of the transition period on the 31st of December. Do you think we're going to see it go right down to the wire? I do. I think I agree with James that if there is progress between now and Sunday, talks will likely continue next week. I think the real deadline is probably three or four days shy of the 28th of December. The European Parliament has tentatively scheduled a vote for the 28th or the 29th. There are several committees in the European Parliament that would need to scrutinise the legal text. They could be forced to do it quickly if necessary. EU capitals and permanent representations in Brussels will not like the fact that they're being squeezed to scrutinise all of this text very quickly. But if they had to do it, they would. They did it in the context of the divorce talks last year. So I think three or four days shy of the 28th of December is probably the real deadline, assuming you get real momentum behind the, the talks today heading into Sunday. James, you also make the point that three sticking points remain, the level playing field, fish and governance. Why are these three issues so contentious? So I think the level playing field is so contentious because of this this EU worry that 
the UK is going to somehow turn itself into Singapore on Thames, that it is going to have this zero tariff, zero quota relationship with a single market, but then undercut not the EU's current standards, but the EU's future standards. So I think that that is why that is such an issue of contention. Fishing, I think it is simply because that is arguably the UK's strongest card in this negotiation. And in the event of no deal, the EU would lose access to the EU's waters entirely. So the EU is trying to negotiate very hard. And fishing has become a totemic issue on, on, on both sides of the channel. You know, I don't think the UK government can really flex on whether EU boats can enter into the UK's kind of territorial waters, you know, within 12 miles of a shoreline. But at the same time, the French and the Belgians are very keen to defend their fishing communities and, and the places where they have traditionally fished. I don't think it escaped anyone's notice that last night's dinner was very heavy on the fish front, you know, scallops to start, turbot for a main course. And then governance is obviously an issue because, you know, how do you resolve these disputes? And one of the issues, I think, on the level playing field is that the EU wants this system where it can unilaterally impose tariffs on the UK but the UK would not be able to respond in kind if the EU felt that the UK was not keeping up with its standards. So, And I think that actually speaks to a kind of broader problem, which is I think sometimes in this negotiation, the EU still kind of almost thinks of the UK as a member state rather than as another entity that it is negotiating a trade deal with. Mitch, how likely do you think at this point no deal is? James says that both sides are keen not to walk away, but do you think there's a chance that they might end up doing that? I think the no-deal risk is definitely rising, so we have to articulate percentages for our clients and we're at 45% no-deal, 55% deal. I think I agree with James that the the, the three big issues are the ones that he's talked about. I think the level playing field is absolutely central to an agreement. I think it's far more important than fish... Or, or governance. And I think it's really because the EU is really seeking safeguards and guarantees around fair competition. And the UK side obviously wants to take advantage of, of Brexit. And that effectively means being able to legislate to compete. Now, I think in the negotiations, actually, for a long time, the UK side has been refusing to to kind of move towards a dynamic alignment type model. And I think that's been clear. And I think the EU has accepted that. I think the European Union has also accepted that the UK is not going to simply sign up to non-regression, that even that is a problem and Europe would want more, the UK doesn't want to do more. So for the last few months, there's been a discussion on a, on a kind of middle ground, you know, if it's not sticking to standards that exist today and it's not following what Europe does in the future, is there a middle ground that can be articulated? And, and really what's happened quite recently is this notion of equivalence and how you capture equivalence. How do you measure whether the two sides remain more or less consistent? And if they're not consistent, what do you do about it? And what's the process to determine what you do about it? And it's really those three issues now that are outstanding in the negotiations. And I think technical fixes do exist. The question is whether you can get to those technical fixes in the time in the time that remains. And I think that that's going to be the challenge over the course of the next three or four days. How do you stand up a regime that captures divergence? What's the process to manage it? And how do you determine what the implications are in the event that takes place? James, as you note in your column, there has been some progress this week because they reached an agreement on implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol. It seemed as if Northern Ireland was going to be one of the big sticking points. So can you explain what this agreement means and how how it came about? 
So essentially what, what happened there was that the most controversial part of the withdrawal agreement Boris Johnson signed last year was the Northern Ireland Protocol, which did effectively put regulatory checks into the Irish Sea, so between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And then the UK government, I mean, partly out of a, a regret about the political pressures that had led Boris Johnson to signing it, also partly, I think, to try and create some leverage in the negotiations, set about attempting to kind of unilaterally rewrite the protocol in this thing called the Internal Market Bill. That was the thing that Brandon Lewis very famously said, it broke, international, broke the UK's international obligations in a specific and limited way. The EU understandably kicked off about that, saying, you know, how can we negotiate you if you, if you break your previous commitments? What's a essentially being resolved this week is it going to fix on the implementation that means the UK feels it can drop those clauses in the internal market bill because for example British supermarkets will be able to carry on exporting to Northern Ireland without having to go through a very onerous system of checks. I think that this cuts both ways in terms of a deal. On the one hand, you can say, look, it shows you how quickly things can get resolved. Problems that seemed intractable can be fixed fast. The negotiation on Monday was very rapid to get to this deal. The other way you can say is this now means that no deal will not elicit the furious reaction from the Biden administration that I think it would have done without this deal. You know, the Biden administration, when it comes in, you know, I think if, if its first conversations with Boris Johnson have been about the Irish border and the UK reneging on the commitments it had signed up to in the withdrawal agreement, that would have got that relationship off to the worst possible start. And I mean, that would have weighed very heavily on the UK's mind before going down the no deal path. That now is almost boxed off as an issue. So whatever happens with no deal, it is not going to have the effects on Northern Ireland that it could have done. Mitch, just finally, James ends his column by making the point that Theresa May's negotiating position was much weaker because of the parliamentary numbers. And now that Boris Johnson has a large majority, he's in a strong position. Do you think that that's going to be incredibly helpful over the next few weeks? I do think I do think Johnson will be able to get whatever deal he does in Brussels through Parliament. We're not really concerned about the dynamic within the parliamentary party. I think there's a, a number of the European research group that will vote against whatever deal he, if he does a deal, he brings home because they want no deal. But there's a large enough majority that I think will carry the agreement through. I think the OBR's assessment around the no deal risk has probably picked off a lot of mainstream Tories to get behind the agreement. You know, in the event his majority is being called into question, it will go through with Labour support. So, of course, that wouldn't be great for Johnson. But I think domestically, the the parliamentary politics are, are less of a concern for us. The big, I think, issue is, you know, does the deal he does in Brussels, is it consistent with his conception of sovereignty and... You know, does he does he believe it delivers on that ability for the UK to fundamentally do things differently? And I think, frankly, for him to do a deal that delivers on that, he, he frankly has to pick up the phone and talk to Macron, to my mind. That is the key now to unlocking the deal. I don't think it can happen via the Barnier-Frost process. It's not going to happen through the Commission. As, as with Varadka last year in the Wirral, the key interlocutor on the EU side are the French. They're key on fish. They're absolutely key on the level playing field. Merkel can't move the EU side as much because she owns the presidency. She has to read the room and see where the equilibrium is. So if Boris wants a deal, he has to get to Macron, either indirectly through a conduit, directly, somehow... That contact has to happen over the next week or so if there's going to be an agreement. So that's one big thing we're looking for. I think the difficulty is that the Commission have been very clear 
that you know you talk to them not to the member states and i think this is part of the problem which is i think midge is completely right that i think it is verging on crazy that we are on the edge of no deal with all that would mean for all the other issues like foreign policy and defense cooperation and everything else and yet boris johnson and emmanuel macron have not sat down and said look what are your bottom lines we're both politicians. What deals could we sell to our publics? Yet, I think the problem is, I think the Commission are very hard line that you don't speak to anyone but them about this deal. I agree with that, James. And I think the fact that, you know, Merkel has had a lot on her plate over the course of the last few weeks. There's been a big fight with the EU on the budget, Poland-Hungary. She's been renegotiating the EU's 2030 climate commitment. There's a discussion around sanctions and Turkey. There's a lot on her agenda. The good thing is... After today, those three issues, Turkey, the EU budget and climate will be off her plate. The presidency will have delivered an outcome on all three. So the only thing left now for the Merkel presidency to problem solve between now and the end of the year is Brexit. And I suspect if that Barnier-Frost process does not move the dynamic forward and if the Boris von der Leyen contact on Sunday also does not, I, I agree with you that this has to go up a level. There needs to be contact at the political level. And I think the key, as I say, interlocutor is Macron. And in some form or fashion, I suspect that contact will happen. Because if you think about Macron's dynamic next year, he's dealing with Islamic terrorism. He's got an unemployment crisis around the corner, a re-election in early 2022. Throwing no deal into that context, I think, is also a bad outcome for him. So I think there's good alignment between his interests and Johnson's that suggests to me that contact will happen. I don't know when and how, but I suspect at some point it's going to have to happen. Thank you, James and Mujtaba. Finally, an almighty row has broken out over the closure of a cycle lane on Kensington High Street. In his diary this week, the broadcaster Jeremy Vine writes about his dismay at the news and says that cyclists don't fit their left-wing stereotype. To discuss, I'm joined by the journalist Christian Wilmer, who is at the protest against the lane's closure, and the comedian, actor and writer Griff Rees-Jones, who in October argued in The Spectator against TfL's decision to build new cycle lanes. Christian, in his diary this week, Jeremy Vine writes about his upset at the dismantling of the Kensington High Street cycle lane, you were at the demonstration protesting against its removal last week. Why were you so against it? Well, actually, I happen to be a Kensington boy, born and bred, and I used to cycle along Kensington High Street to get to my school. And it was dangerous then, and it's been dangerous for the last 50 or 60 years since then. And at last, something was done about it. And you could see the impact of this. You could see that there were people cycling with their 10-year-olds to school. There were people who probably hadn't used a bike for 20 or 30 years, slightly wobbling along this cycle lane because they could feel safe. So what was there not to like? You know, there's everything going for this. It's good for the environment. It's good for people's health to cycle. It's good for local pollution. And indeed, even the shopkeepers might not realise this, in the past, places where you've had cycle lanes, where you've had more pedestrianisation, the footfall has gone up because essentially people don't shop in their cars. They have to get out of them. So if they can access the place easily by bike, the footfall will go up. So, so why have they dismantled it then? Well, because it's ideological. There was one or two 
local people. In fact, a fellow actor, Nigel Havers, was uh, campaigning against it. And yet, actually, when they did the consultation, they found that 58% were in favour and 42% were against. And they never really gave this a chance at all because it was only up for a few weeks, cost a vast amount of money, and they never really properly tried it out. They just said, oh, well, this doesn't work. Well, I couldn't understand in what way it didn't work. Griff, you've, you've written before for The Spectator about new cycle lanes. It was back in October that you last wrote about it. Can you tell us what you argued at that point? I have to say from the beginning that traffic in London is a, is a complicated issue and has been, I think, since Roman times. I think they've calculated that we actually don't get across London any faster these days than walking pace. So walk everywhere is my, is my real advice to everybody if they, if they live. But I live in central London and you know Doughty Street because the spectator used to be there. And I've just moved in there. So I'm a bit horrified by the arbitrary way in which this sort of this coup was introduced. I, I didn't like Islington councillors saying, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for us to change the way that traffic around London works. And the reason I didn't like that was because it's a sort of holistic approach to the idea. It's actually a sort of utopian approach to the idea of traffic in London. It was Transport for London that acted on these main routes. The main routes are there to keep the traffic out of the places where people live. And if the main routes become clogged up, all that happens is that everybody goes, I'll turn left here and I'll drive down Doughty Street, I'll drive through central Soho, I'll get off this road because this road is now jammed, as it was the Euston Road. It was perfectly evident that by the time that I travelled down it, that it was perfectly evident there were no cycles in that cycle lane. It was completely and utterly empty. If we're going to take radical steps, we need to change the emphasis on commuting. Can I can I come in here, uh, Lara? I mean, I mean of because I, I think Griff is confusing several different things here and has gone slightly off piste. Yes, the, the particular cycle lane that he's suggested, that he's talked about in Euston Road, that was probably not the best idea for cycling. But the whole point is that if you do have cycle lanes that encourage people to get from A to B without going on the main roads, which is often parallel uh, cycle roads, you will reduce the amount of traffic on those main roads because some of those people would otherwise have driven. I think Griff is wrong to say that in central London during the day, it's all buses and uh, lorries and the like. There are quite a lot of private cars still buzzing around London, paying the congestion charge and clogging up the streets. And I quite agree with him that on residential streets, it's much better not to have through traffic. But what's happened over the last few years is that thanks to the various sat-navs that everybody now has, Waze and the like, they direct people down streets like Doughty Street. So unless you actually then take the sort of measures that Islington Council has tried to take, which is to block some of these off, create what's called low-traffic neighbourhoods, poor old Griff is going to suffer from even vastly more amount of cars down, down his road. Griff, do you want to see more roads blocked off? Well, I believe that the process is not going to change the real quantity of traffic that comes into London. I think at the moment, the reason I was writing, not because I'm against bicycles or because I'm in favour of cars. So low traffic areas are not my issue. The issue was that major roads in London 
are not rat runs, they're major roads through London. It was Transport for London only has control over the major roads. I'm not arguing particularly with the Islington Council creating low traffic zones. I was writing specifically about the fact that Mr Khan thought that it would be, has, has, has tried to close what are essentially, because we live in an urban sprawl, the main arteries through London for traffic. Not, I don't want them to be arteries. I want them, I want that traffic, if if possible, to go elsewhere. You you said you, you criticised the idea that Islington Council had a utopian approach, but surely can't you see that actually the way that cities are designed around emphasising that cars should have priority everywhere, that that's the main function of streets and so on, is miles off utopia. And that seeing kind of 10-year-olds cycle along streets, getting to school in a healthy way, getting to school independently, as one sees everywhere in Holland, I don't see what's wrong with that utopia. I mean, I'm all in favour of utopias, and yet you you kind of seem to to criticise it. wasn't designed... This is the problem. In the 60s, the planners came in, uh, and I commend um, Simon Jenkins' latest book on London, because the plans for Fitzrovia at that point were undertaken by civil engineers and road engineers to try and produce things. They wanted to extend the Westway. They were going to come down Tottenham Court Road, and they were going to extend the Tottenham Court Road into a six-lane highway. That's why it's called Centre Point. And they also had plans, uh, rather alarming plans, to put a sort of platform above Fitzrovia, running right the way through Fitzrovia, Fitzroy Square, all the rest of it. These plans are plans and they were utopian plans because people believed at that time that the the car and Corbusier were the solution. No, 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 they were dystopian plans. What I'm saying is it's not the process, it's it's not the end result. It's the process by which the end result is, is achieved. And we are as much in danger of, of great big sort of theories. Let's take London, give it a good old shake up with pro bicyclists as we were with people who wanted to put in um, huge motorways. No, but, but no, precisely, no, precisely that. And they stopped that. And I campaigned against that motorway scheme. It was the first political act I, I ever did. It was called the motorway boxes. And it would have actually completely wrecked London. But, you know, Griff, we're, we're now kind of proposing precisely the opposite, a, a London that is much more accessible. And I know change is difficult. You know, it's difficult to kind of realise this, but you only have to look at a lot of European cities. Look, Just look at Paris, where the mayor said, right, we're just going to have uh, 750 kilometres of, of, of cycle routes. We're just going to actually limit car parking in the centre. And it's changing. Paris was a nightmare in terms of traffic, and now it's becoming far more livable. Don't you see that you do have to have a big idea? And yes, you do have to tread on a few toes on the way there. But that's a matter of education. It's a matter of showing people that there is a better way for the cities to be run and that lots more people could live on streets which are not a buzz with cars, you know, several hundred cars an hour kind of wrecking their lives. And that's, that, that is a utopia, but I think it's a perfectly feasible one. Can I just finish on something that Jeremy mentions in his in his diary? He says that lots of people think cycling is is very left wing because a lot of left wing people do it, but actually he argues that it's actually very right wing because it's all about individual freedom. Griff, do you agree with that? I'm interested in the distinction. I, I quite like the idea. I have to say that I think a right wing cyclist drives a sit up and big bicycle. I'm right wing about cyclists in as much as I think cyclists need to be brought within the regulations. One of the difficulties about about London, I mean, I now, I love living in central London because my green footprint 
is fantastic. I walk everywhere. I take public transport and I, I have a car, but I use it perhaps once a week. But when I travel down the Clerkenwell Road, I'm astonished by people's lack of self-preservation. And I want cyclists to come within the regulatory. So liberalism is fine, but please don't cycle with no lights. Eight out of 10 people in the East End of London don't bother with lights. Don't cycle in dark clothes. That's a sort of crazy thing to do. And please, don't put on a pair of roller skates and a huge backpack and roller skate down the middle of the main road home. You're just inviting a sort of a sense of terror amongst everybody who's, who's it. We have a terrible system which shares the roads. And I just, so I'm right wing about cyclists only in as far as the, the, the belief that we ought to try and impress upon cyclists that they're not in a race or at least half of them find another cyclist in front of them as sort of an object, nor are they in a circus. And they should do something about realising, as they do in Paris, as they do in Copenhagen, as they do in Amsterdam, about riding safely and proportionately and not on one wheel. I must say, this is a characterization of cyclists that I, I don't recognise. I mean, most of the people that I cycle past are, are just like me. I, I mean, either, you know, cycling at a reasonable pace or old gents or, you know, young uh, kids and, and so on. And the cycle lanes enables a much wider range of people to, to cycle. That's a key point about them, that it's only the people who, I don't want to use the term like it out, but it's what people do use, who are able to cycle in the, the war out there that is the roads and once you create cycle lanes then the cyclists are much more likely to obey the traffic rules and then because they realize that this is provided for them so i think we're on the same side there griff cycle lanes are the solution thank you griff and thank you christian and that's it for this week if you pick up this week's issue you'll find everything we've talked about along with francis pike on russia's bid to control the arctic James Bartholomew's letter from Albania and Charlie Taylor on juvenile prisons. Thanks for listening and do join us again next week. The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online. Plus, a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.